Chapter Four of Some American Storytellers by Frederick Tabor Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Four, Robert W. Chambers. There are certain novelists whose phenomenal popularity challenges us almost like a blow in the face and demands an explanation. Mister Robert W. Chambers is a case in point. We have not at present a large number of writers who have made good their claim to a place among the born storytellers but of these few mr chambers is one who in the estimation of the big reading public seems to have proved a clear title for this reason it is distinctly worth while to examine the work of mr chambers with an unsparing frankness that would seem unkind to a writer of less popular favour and to ask ourselves without prejudice or illusion just what he has succeeded in accomplishing wherein he has fallen short of his early promise and why he has not attained that higher goal which has always seemed to lie so easily within his reach in the first place it is worth while to rehearse briefly and keep in mind just a few biographical details that mr chambers was born in brooklyn may twenty sixth eighteen sixty five that he and mr charles dana gibson were fellow students at the art students league in new york that in eighteen eighty six he went to paris and studied at the ecole des beaux-arts and at julian's for seven years his paintings finding acceptance at the salon when he was about twenty-four years of age he returned to new york in eighteen ninety three and a glance over the old files of life truth and vogue reveals his activity at that time as an illustrator but the story-writer's instinct the riotous fertility of imagination that insisted on flashing endless motion pictures before his eyes at all times and in all places demanded a fuller and more rapid means of expression than that of palette and brushstroke the tangible realities of his student's life in paris formed the raw material for his first novel in the quarter while the yet undisciplined extravagances of his imagination found outlet in the short stories of uncanny and haunting power that make up the volume entitled the king in yellow it was the cordial recognition accorded the second volume that decided mr chambers subsequent career to a critic attempting a conscientious and discriminating study of mr chambers work the first and most salient feature is his productivity in barely seventeen years he has produced thirty-six volumes including four juvenile stories and a collection of verse furthermore his uncommon versatility once found expression in a drama entitled the witch of ellangowan written for miss ada rahan and produced at daly's theatre it is neither practicable nor advantageous to study in detail more than a fraction of these works singling out such as clearly mark the author's several periods of transition and stand as significant landmarks of gain or loss in technique but before taking up these separate volumes it is well to get a general impression of mr chambers literary methods his characteristic practice of the art he has chosen in preference to that for which he was trained the emphasis of position is deliberately laid upon the concluding phrase of the preceding paragraph the disadvantage under which the art of fiction has always suffered is that there is demanded of it no such long period of probation no such definite apprenticeship as are exacted from all the other arts it is true that many a beginner in story-writing is condemned usually with justice to months and years of disappointment an augmenting collection of rejection slips and the consignment one by one of treasured manuscripts to the waste-paper basket on the other hand it happens every now and then that a new writer breaks into print like thunder out of a clear sky with scarcely any preliminary training and by sheer force of an inborn talent 
but the important point is that whether premature or belated the success of the story-writer comes from self-tuition there exists no julians to train the budding novelist no salon to give a world-wide recognition to real genius the case of mr chambers himself is interesting and significant seven years seemed not too long a time to serve for the right to have a few sketches published in our illustrated magazines but when one day it casually occurred to him to sit down at his desk and to turn the things he had seen into written pages the result a few months later was the irrevocable black and white of a printed book of course in one sense such an experience is high testimony to a writer's natural talent and not merely justifies but well-nigh demands his continuance along the same path on the other hand such an inborn and spontaneous vein of creative power is a handicap as well as an advantage it minimizes the importance of self-discipline and of that mastery of technique which is to be acquired only at the price of many failures all this is by way of preface to the one obvious and all-pervading weakness in the writings of mr chambers for it is important to get this weakness clearly in mind before we recognize cordially his many distinctive talents some admirers of mr chambers have spoken enthusiastically of his rare constructive ability and of the unerring instinct with which he brings his stories to the desired climax to a great extent this is true if only we place the principal accent upon the word instinct what mr chambers literary methods are the present writer does not know in detail but a careful analysis leaves the impression that he allows his stories very largely to construct themselves relying upon that inborn faculty for narrative which we have already so cordially granted him for instance the elementary principle of economy of means is a rule for which mr chambers seems to have no use he has found by experience that the public likes to listen to him and so long as they listen he sees no reason for curtailing to fifty words a sentence which left to itself flows along to upward of a hundred in his latest books he no more sees the objection to interrupting the progress of a plot by a few pages of unnecessary dialogue than in his earlier period he saw the harm of delaying progress with superfluous paragraphs of quite vivid and wonderful description in other words the impression left by mr chambers work as a whole is that he has not chosen to study carefully and to practise the best technique of the recognised masters of modern fiction he prefers to begin and to end a story where he pleases regardless of the question whether this beginning and end coincide with those dictated by the best art in a measure this is rather curious because of all the arts none is so closely related to fiction as that of painting none that should be a more unerring guide to the best methods of composition and yet in his stories mr chambers over and over again interjects extraneous details which if he had been thinking in terms of brush-strokes and paint-tubes he would have known at once to lie far beyond the borders of his canvas these criticisms of mr chambers methods are based not upon individual impressions but upon facts easily to be demonstrated from the books themselves nevertheless they are made hesitantly because it is quite possible that mr chambers has been wise in writing precisely as he does it may be that his erratic effervescent irrepressible flow of invention would have become clogged and diverted under the trammels of a stricter technique what he does possess and what must be acceded to him freely and generously are a graphic power of visualization that sets before you with the lavishness of a glowing canvas precisely the picture that he has in his mind's eye an ability to handle crowds and give you the sense of the jostle and turmoil of busy streets the tumult and uproar of angry throngs the din and havoc of battle 
and thirdly he possesses to an exceptional degree the trick of conveying a sense of motion you are caught swept off your feet and breathlessly carried onward by the irresistible rush and surge of his narrative many another writer has succeeded in describing speed few of them have been able so intensely to make you feel it few of them have given the impression of the inexorable rapidity with which the tragedies of life sometimes succeed each other and furthermore a quality which must be conceded to mr chambers in common with such specialists in the outdoor life as stuart edward white or charles g d roberts is an enthusiastic and all-pervading love of nature of wood and field and water of hunting and fishing of all creatures of the earth and air large and small there is not a story but what has in it some furred or feathered creature that plays a more or less prominent part in the structure not a chapter that is quite lacking in the song of birds or the fragrance of flowers or the flutter of insect wings and with all this is the unmistakable imprint of authority you feel that mr chambers may blunder in the colour of a man's hair or the motive for a woman's action but he is too good a naturalist to mistake the species of a beetle or a butterfly or misname a wayside weed or a woodland creeper the great majority of our society novelists confine themselves so largely to the artificial life of drawing-room and boudoir that we ought to be grateful to mr chambers if only for the sake of the breath of open air and song and sunshine that he never quite loses even in the darkest and meanest of our city streets it will not be necessary in order to arrive at a well-rounded estimate of mr chambers real value to examine critically more than half a dozen of his books an author's first published volume usually possesses a peculiar significance as a standard of measurement for what comes after therefore in the quarter cannot be disregarded one's first impression in reading it is that of astonishment at its vividness it is so unmistakably a series of pen drawings of things actually seen and lived a pell-mell gathering of the humour and pathos the gladness and the pain of the modern art student's life one's second thought is that while essentially modern in material the book is curiously old-fashioned in structure almost as destitute of coherence as la vie de bohème itself there is not an episode that you wish to prune away they are so frankly enjoyable for their own sake but as for plot with the best intentions in the world one fails to extract anything more definite than this an american art student who drifts into quite the usual entanglement with a young girl of a rather better sort than the average parisian model an estrangement brought about by the american's inheritance of a fortune and the interference of the french girl's jealous sister and finally the unjustifiable and melodramatic murder of the american by the sister just as all misunderstandings have been cleared up and the wedding is arranged in this book in spite of certain crudities the following points are to be noticed here at the very start mr chambers showed a rare power of description a distinct ability at portraiture of such types as he really knew and because the book was written under french influences the slight structure that it possessed was logical even the melodramatic ending was foreshadowed and structurally justifiable following this novel came a succession of volumes which with the exception of one or two negligible efforts consist of collections of short stories the king in yellow the maker of moons and the mystery of choice mr chambers has at intervals since then published other volumes of tales such as the tree of heaven and some ladies in haste but unquestionably his fame as a writer of the short story will rest upon these earlier volumes 
widely as they differ in character and quality ranging from painfully sinister horror stories to fantasies light as rainbow bubbles they all of them have one quality in common a wanton unreality a defiance of everything that in our sober senses we are accustomed to believe coupled with a certain assumption of seriousness an insistence upon little realistic details that force us for the time being to accept as actual the most outrageous absurdities and to vibrate as responsively as a violin string to the touch of the author's finger and the sweep of his imagination it would be easy to pick a dozen of these stories as characteristic examples of mr chambers at the height of his fantastic mood as a matter of personal preference i would single out the story which gives its name to the volume entitled the maker of moons for it runs the gamut of all the varied emotions that characterize these stories the repulsion of tangible physical ugliness the dread of unguessed horror the witchery of supernatural beauty the pervading sense of invisible warring forces of good and evil we start with cold prosaic details a favorite trick of mr chambers the united states treasury officials have reason to believe that an unscrupulous gang of counterfeiters have discovered a method of manufacturing gold so adroitly that it defies chemical analysis and they decide that these makers of moonshine gold must be suppressed there is only one peculiarity about this gold and herein lies the first suggestion of creepy repulsion wherever a lump of the gold is found there are pretty sure to be found also one or more curious misshapen crawling creatures half crab half spider covered with long thick yellow hair and suggestive of uncleanness and venom the headquarters of these counterfeiters is somewhere in the northern woods in a region of peaceful trees and still waters and the whole effect of the story is obtained by the swift series of transitions between the physical violence of a ruthless man-hunt and the ineffable charm and beauty of a dream lady who appears to the hero repeatedly and without warning standing beside a magic fountain and talking to him of a mystic city beyond the seven seas and the great river the river and the thousand bridges the white peak beyond the sweet-scented gardens the pleasant noise of the summer wind laden with bee-music and the music of bells it is hard in a clumsy retelling of such gossamer spun tales to give the impression of anything more than a jumble of mad folly yet the tale itself leaves an insistent memory of supernatural beauty seen vaguely through moonlight and of the fulsome opulence of demon gold distilling foully into writhing crawling horrors lorraine ashes of empire the red republic and the maids of paradise though appearing at irregular intervals from eighteen ninety four to nineteen hundred three belong together for the twofold reason that they all four have the franco-prussian war as a setting and dashing young americans for their heroes of these four ashes of empire seems best adapted for analysis since it shows perhaps the best of any of them the qualities and weaknesses of mr chambers in this type of novel it is essentially the type of the modern novel of adventure the type made familiar by stanley wayman max pemberton henry seaton merriman and richard harding davis and on the whole mr chambers treatment of the type may be compared not unfavorably with any one of these he happens to know unusually well both the history and the topography of france during the period that he has chosen to treat he attempts no ambitious character study he takes no daring liberties with recorded facts he is content to tell a series of rattling good stories that not only keep moving but keep you moving with them and there is no doubt that he himself is having as much enjoyment in the writing as any of the readers have in the reading 
and yet it is evident that this type of book is not what mr chambers would have deliberately chosen as his favourite life-work one may venture to risk the conjecture that he would never have written these books at all had it not been for the sudden popularity a decade ago of the adventure novel coupled with his own fatal facility for turning out pretty nearly any sort of story that he chooses to undertake had he cared more for his work we should have had in these books characters less wooden and more like real people and episodes more uniformly serious and less apt to approach the borderline of farce ashes of empire is in this respect typical it deals with the empress eugenie's flight the siege and the surrender of paris there are two young american war correspondents who happen to be outside the tuileries at an opportune time to aid two unknown young women to hoodwink the crowd and effect the empress's safe retreat these two war correspondents partly by design partly by good luck succeed in tracing the young women to their home abutting on the city's fortifications learn that the girls live there quite alone renting the upper apartments to lodgers and keeping a bird-shop on the ground floor in which parrots jackdaws and a tame lioness harmlessly romp together the war correspondents promptly fall in love with the two sisters rescue them from the villainous machinations of two german americans who turn out to be prussian spies and after undergoing the usual allotment of hair-breadth escapes marry and live happily ever after but while the characterization is weak and the plot conventional the background is really alive we feel the tension of a national crisis the dread of approaching disaster the scream of shells and the wails of starvation the despair of a people who know that both from within and without they have been betrayed to this extent at least the book is a worthy piece of work and it is exasperating in the same way that so much of mr chambers work exasperates because we feel that he might so easily have made it better many a sincere friend of mr chambers has frankly declared outsiders to be his one great blunder yet it is a finer and more sincere piece of work than many of his successful volumes moreover it throws some useful light upon his attitude not so many years ago toward publishers critics and life in general in the city of new york it is not surprising that the book failed to achieve popularity he committed in it almost all the indiscretions which are supposed to bar the way to a big sale he ridiculed american culture american architecture and american social standing and he rounded out the story with an ending which sinned doubly by being not only unhappy but structurally unnecessary nevertheless one cannot help liking the book it is so vigorous so cleverly satirical and in the main so well written the life of the self-styled bohemian circles the life of the petty artists the minor poets the second-rate scribblers of all sorts is to be sure largely done in caricature but it is caricature of an easily recognized sort and the background though frankly painted by an outsider and a hostile outsider at that is vividly unmistakably aggressively new york you cannot at a single moment of this story forget your whereabouts or imagine yourself in any other city in the world Quote, far up the ravine of masonry and iron a beautiful spire blue in the distance rose from a gothic church that seemed to close the great thoroughfare at its northern limit that's grace church said oliver with a little catch in his voice it was the first familiar landmark that he had found in the city of his boyhood and he had been away only a dozen years suddenly he realized the difference between a city in the old world acceptance of the term and the city before his eyes this stupendous excrescence of naked iron gaunt under its skin of paint flimsily colossal ludicrously sad 
this half-begun irrational gaudy dingy monstrosity this temporary fairground choked with tinsel ill-paved ill-lighted stark treeless swarming crawling with humanity in the decade that has since passed mr chambers has learned to make his characters even when they have long resided abroad more uniformly courteous regarding their expressed opinions of american cities and american customs one wonders a little whether this is because he has succeeded in acquiring a taste for our ugly buildings and our noisy streets or whether it is simply a matter of expedient reticence be this as it may one cannot read attentively his latest and most mature volumes his present series of contemporary new york life without observing that descriptive passages of city streets and buildings are conspicuously absent the moment that he escapes from the city the moment that he finds himself in the open once more on the wide-spreading levels of long island or the picturesque stretches of the main coast or the adirondacks we get again that fertile vividness of landscape painting which was one of the great charms of his earlier books for the most part however one notices a great change in method in these later society novels that already include the fighting chance the younger set the firing line and the danger mark he has begun to take himself much more seriously he no longer gives you the impression of deliberately having fun with his characters and situations he is trying quite sincerely to handle social and ethical problems of real importance and what is more to handle them in the only way that is worth while namely by using for his setting the present-day social life in the city and among the people that he best knows and for these reasons the recent work of mr chambers must be judged more strictly than his earlier volumes because he has become more ambitious he must be held more closely to account for his deficiencies these four novels have the following points in common the action is divided between the social world of new york city and the country homes of the fashionable set the central interest in each of the four volumes is due to certain hereditary instincts or impulses which make it either inexpedient or impossible for a certain man and woman to marry in two of the volumes namely the younger set and the firing line they unwisely have married and the story itself largely hinges on problems raised subsequently by divorce in the fighting chance and the danger mark the problem is that of unfitness to marry the only difference between the two volumes being that the one is the reverse of the other the former presenting a case where the man inherits a craving for alcohol and the woman an abnormal instinct for the flattery and attentions of men while in the latter it is the woman who is intemperate and the man whose gallantries are uncontrolled now it cannot be denied that these themes are good enough in themselves and that if properly handled with adequate knowledge of life and sincerity of purpose they might have given us something worthy of standing as an american substitute for the continental type of analytical novel and it is precisely for reasons of this sort that one becomes every now and then distinctly exasperated with mr chambers not because his work is bad but because one feels that it falls just short of being something a great deal better the fighting chance and the danger mark are easily the best works of this later period so much better than the two divorce problem novels that the latter may be left out of consideration you read along in the fighting chance rather sceptically perhaps at the start because of a conviction that it has been much overpraised by the general public then little by little you find it taking hold upon you because it has much of mr chambers earlier qualities and something new in addition it has his pictorial vividness his skilful light and shade his rapidity of action his mesmeric trick of making even the improbable seem quite a matter of course 
and at the same time it reveals a new power of delineating character of presenting us with people who are not merely types but individuals as well people whose inward struggles and anxieties we feel a keen and growing desire to share and then all at once we run up against a paragraph or a chapter that gives us a shock because it seems so out of keeping with the rest of the picture so clearly the sort of thing that people do not say or do one charitably minded reader who is at the same time a sincere admirer of mr chambers at his best explains these occasional notable lapses at least so far as the dialogue is concerned on the ground that the author at such times has contented himself with merely giving as it were the bare scenario with telling what his characters said without taking the time or trouble to work up the still more important question of just how they really said it in other words the simplest explanation of the unevenness of style in the fighting chance is that mr chambers to borrow one of his own titles permits himself at times to be a young man in a hurry but the real reason why mr chambers studies of american life at times strike a note that we feel to be off the key is this his portraits of men are always a little stronger surer more convincing than those of his women study them all carefully from first to last from his roughly blocked-in women of the latin quarter and the vaporous dream-maidens of his early fantasies down to the designedly flesh-and-blood women of his latest book and you feel that in varying degrees they all have one little defect they are all of them what men like to think women to be rather than the actual women themselves in their actions they live up to the man's expectation of what they are going to do next rather than to woman's inalienable right to do the unexpected and illogical thing take for example the fighting chance in substance it amounts to this a young woman already pledged to a man enjoying all the advantages of wealth and position one day meets another man under the shadow of a heavy disgrace due to his intemperate habits they are guests at the same house party they are thrown much together and within forty-eight hours she falls unresisting into his arms and yields her lips as readily as any servant girl heredity says the author the girl cannot help it the women in her family have for generations been all that they ought not to be nevertheless the reader retorts the girl does not become all that she ought not to be during the weeks that follow there is many a venturesome scene many a dialogue between the two that skirts the edge of impropriety but in spite of heredity the lady never quite loses her head and after they separate at the close of the summer season and the months slip by and she knows quite well that the man she loves is drinking himself to death when a word from her would stop him she continues to wear the other man's large diamond ring and play her part in the social whirl and only after the lapse of many months does it occur to her that she can effect the salvation of a human soul without in the least endangering her own reputation by merely calling him up on the telephone and having a five minutes chat now this is not said with the object of belittling mr chambers work the greater part of it is good surprisingly good when one considers that he is a romanticist suddenly turned psychologue only it does not seem that a real woman could have acted in quite that way she either would have flung discretion to the wind and done all sorts of mad things earlier in the game and thrown the blame upon heredity or else she would from the very beginning have had sufficient self-control to keep her lips her own for somewhat longer than forty-eight hours it is always an interesting question interesting largely because it is in a measure unanswerable what position is going to be assigned by a later generation to any one of our contemporary novelists as regards mr chambers there are just a few predictions which may be made without hesitation 
as a writer of short stories he has produced at least half a dozen that deserve to rank among the best that american writers have produced and no future collection of representative short stories can claim to be complete if it happens to neglect his name as a novelist he has to face the handicap that must accompany too great an adaptability with rare exceptions the great names in fiction are those of writers whose work throughout has been fairly homogeneous writers who have known from the beginning precisely what sort of books they wanted to write and whose volumes have differed in degree and not in kind mr chambers has veered and apparently with intention in accordance with the breeze of popular demand first to the french historical novel then to the civil war story and finally when the demand was sufficiently emphatic to the contemporary society novel in this last field there is still a hope that mr chambers will at length find himself and the fact that the last of the four books is the best and most sustained and most honest piece of work that his later manner has produced affords solid ground for the hope that he may have still better and maturer volumes yet to come nevertheless the accumulated experience of the ages has inculcated a wise distrust of the literary weathercock End of chapter four